0: This is WWJT. In this episode, what we're going to be doing is talking to Wyatt Graham, who's the executive director of the Gospel Coalition Canada, about how the Bible informs us on moral decisions, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament too. It informs us to make decisions about how to use tech, but that doesn't mean that we can go and tell everybody the Christian approach to using tech is the way that we do it. We should not be binding other people's consciences to the opinions that we hold. And so we need to make these distinctions. We're going to get into making those distinctions, how to make those distinctions, why people who didn't wear masks during the pandemic might not have been correct, according
1: to Wyatt. He has some opinions there. Um, Joel? Yeah, no, some great foundational theological um, presentation. Definitely good for us as we talk about, you know, what would Jesus tech in a more practical application sense during our, our podcast?
0: So, just by way of introduction to the issue, I'm going to read a little bit of Romans 14. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has Accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever regards one day special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to the Lord. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead.
2: Paul goes, okay, I get that you have scruples, you have, and you have different scruples, but as long as, Romans 15, 7, you welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, you're allowed to have differences of opinions. So in Romans 14, 1, he says, accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters or opinions. You're allowed to have opinions. It's fine. Because opinions are things that you believe they're like scruples that are not, that are one layer above necessary Christian beliefs. It's like, you have to agree that Jesus rose from the dead, but you probably can disagree on whether you need small groups in a local church. You know what I mean? Like,
0: what if I told you you shouldn't be passing judgment on other Christians with how they use tech, at least for the most part? Because what if being a strong Christian is actually recognizing that there are disputable matters, that we should... Be okay with using tech differently according to our conscience, and it's actually more important how you treat your brother or sister in these ways with grace, humility, and compassion rather than getting everybody to agree with you. Well, to help us figure out this today, we have the Executive Director of the Gospel Coalition Canada, Wyatt Graham. Thanks for joining us, Wyatt. It's
2: great to have you. Yeah, it's fun to be able to meet. I think you and I knew each other from the internet world. The tech That's world right. and now we get to see each other through a tech medium again so i like it i'm fine with it though
0: <laughs> technology is good it uh uh, yeah, literally meeting people on Twitter is is a thing that can happen. Um, just as a bit of background for people to get to know you, I listed five things about you. And okay. we're going to ask you, which, is, which of the five is the most stretching for you? Which is the most difficult? So you're married. You can't say this one. You're, you're married <laughs> and you have a daughter and son. You can't say that's the most difficult. Actually, you're I, the have, I, have an,
2: I have two sons now. Oh,
0: you do? I, have, so your I, website's d- I think I, have, like, like, I need to
2: update whatever my bio is. So I'm <laughs> freaking. Oh,
0: <laughs> Okay, <Yes. that's- laughs> Um, executive director of gospel coalition, Canada completed a PhD in biblical theology. You focused on the Psalms. Mm -hmm. I, I, I read that, which is pretty cool. Um, you're a very active Twitter user. You're the host of a podcast yourself into theology, reading great works of theology. You've gone through Calvin's institutes, gone going through Augustine. Um, so yeah, those are the five things, which is the most difficult.
2: Um, the most exhausting was doing a PhD. Mm-hmm. I mean, because family is exhausting in a sense, but like, you're like, you love the little kids, right? So it doesn't really feel that way. But doing a PhD is like, I it was really fun, but it's not the same. It's not like a cute little baby, right? You know, like changing the diaper of like a PhD. So that was, I would say challenging. And also I um was working full time for about half of it, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know. So I was able to the first couple of years, I worked, I think, part time. And so I put a lot of time into it and got done all like the coursework and and such. But then when I was writing, I was working full time because we were having kids. So I needed to. And um, that was harder (laughs) because like every margin of your life, you have to like lunch breaks at work or whatever. I was actually working at a tech job for part of my um. Part of my PhD, I did managed IT support. Hmm. Cool. Um for, for like a lot of different companies. Like not like it was a it was a company that did it for like a lot of companies. So I did, did that kind of work. So you yeah, know, you have your breaks and then I moved to Canada, I returned to Canada and did TGC while I was finishing my PhD, which is like it's a bit easier because there's a lot more overlap, right? Like you can like, I'll oh, just write something on the Psalms or you know, whatever. Um, your, your brain's able to kind of connect dots a little bit easier. So that's probably the answer that I would give. I mean, TGC is hard too, but like life's life's also hard, so I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not the easiest question to answer in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that you you would obviously do um, as someone who's trying to help other Christians is help them understand scripture. And that does have a moral impact, right? Like you, you do believe, I don't, I think you even say that the Old Testament has a moral application to us today. Is that right? Yep. <laughs> so, so defend this, defend this outrageous claim that uh, the Bible should inform us today, even though it's so old
2: well defend that claim well I, there's probably there's probably two ways that people might question there's, there's one like this kind of typical one. If, you're, if you're not a christian it's it's hard to vest authority into a book because it's necessary to believe that god exists for the bible to be authoritative but sometimes people talk about like authority or inspiration or inerrancy or whatever word special words they want to use um with lots of syllables they they I find people kind of go about this way. They're almost trying to prove like they're like these building blocks, like almost like building like a Lego. And once the edifice is complete, everybody has to agree with me. But I just don't think that's true at all. I think doctrines like inspiration, authority, inerrancy, whatever, are downstream from God. <laughs> so if God exists, then it's entirely reasonable that he would reveal himself to us. And in fact, uh, I think that's the, the real starting point is God. And I wouldn't argue with this. So that's one. That one's a bit tougher because there's really two ways to get at that. One is if someone's not a believer, I mean, I think it's evident that God exists through what has been made. And so you can talk about those things. People kind of call that like pre-evangelism. I don't know. I don't really have good words for that. I just think it's so reasonable. It's so true in nature. It's so irresistibly true that you're allowed to talk about those things with anyone. It just it's not giving up anything. Or, but it may not be persuasive because someone may simply not want to believe that God is and rewards those who seek him. Or at least in the way that the Bible articulates him in nature too. On the other hand, then you have Christians. I think this, for me, this is probably the more relevant part of the question because at that level, it's almost just evangelism. I mean, I think you can give basic answers. That's totally fine, but it's almost evangelism. So, I mean, okay, well, if an atheist or a Muslim is like, I don't believe uh, that the old Testament's a Muslim wouldn't say this actually. Uh, like a Hindu or something like that I would say the old Testament is uh, important or for moral, like, well, okay. Um, but then I would talk about God, <laughs> yeah. but if it's a Christian who believes in God, I think that one's a bit trickier because I would be very curious to know why someone would want, want to believe that. I think there are some, there, there were some like historical and social and theological reasons why this might be true. Um, I think it's too easy to kind of just say like this theological theological camp is bad, but um, so I don't want to do that. But I, I do think there is at least in the last hundred years, a really huge focus on understanding the Bible as history and not just that it's part of real history, but like interpreting the Bible and i all the historical details. And I think that was probably a response to some crit- critical criticisms of the Bible, So evangelicals as a response want to show that it's verifiably true in history. And so you have a lot of archeology, span a lot of history, but then you get some, I think theological movements that pick up on that. And that's their main mode. And so you have, and this isn't, this isn't fully true, but some dispensationalists, right. Would almost view the Bible as a historic, like just, it's a history, history, history. And the old Testament is written in ancient history. It's to Israelites And therefore, it's less relevant for Christians today in a direct moral application. But there might be good principles there. Now, I say some because obviously there's a huge spectrum. and It's it's, it's unfair to say that a whole camp would do that. But even reformed people might fall into this pattern too. So at a very basic level, I would just say the entire Bible is Christian. (laughs) God already knew the conclusion from the beginning. It wasn't like he became a Trinity in Matthew 1. Uh, Jesus wasn't plan B. It was plan A. He was always going to come. And so the entire scriptures are written for us and for our salvation. I mean, Paul says this thing very clearly in 1 Corinthians 10, that they're written to the Israelites for us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So if they're written for us, um, and then he also goes into some some, some more moral, moral application there, very clearly in the context. I think the whole Bible is written for us. I think Proverbs is for Christians. I think Ecclesiastes is for Christians. I think Psalms are for Christians. I think Deuteronomy is for Christians. I think that they were written to Israel in a particular historical context for the body of Christ, completely and utterly. And so you have to read them in context, but you also have to know that God's mind is behind it. And God directed all these things for us. So you should never feel afraid to read Samuel or Kings and be like, well, this is like an interesting historical event that happened in Israel. Then just move on. In fact, it was always written for you. 100%. -hmm. And it was always meant to end in Christ. Without a doubt, if you're a Christian, you have to believe something like that. You might nuance it with your own idiom or your own way that you like to talk about it. And that's fine. I'm not trying to say that only covenant theologians or only, disp- you know, no, you, you can have your own idiom, but you have to believe something like that to be, to be able to read the Bible as a Christian. And so all of scripture is for our moral formation. It's meant to make us desire things rightly I mean, the 10th commandment. Don't covet, it's already getting at your heart. Jesus reiterates this and is very clear on this, that it's not just murder, but it's also a hatred of brothers. It's not just adultery, it's lust. He gets that from the Ten Commandments. Well, he gets that because he gave the law. (laughs) So he knows what the law is all about. But you you see what I'm saying? there's, there's There's a continuity there that is essential, maybe less clear until Christ comes, but entirely there in the Old Testament already for us.
0: Yeah, and I think people get confused because oh there's these sacrifices that don't continue into the new covenant. Well, they do in a sense because of Christ's sacrifice and there's the ceremonial, there's like I think some people have broken down the three different types of Old Testament stuff and then they they the moral stuff still applies today. It was I don't know if that was John Calvin who who came up with those three different. There's the moral, the ceremonial, and then one other type. But yeah, there the moral stuff still applies today. We just have some clarity in the New Testament is kind of how I've thought about it.
2: yeah, um the distinctions earlier than Calvin, uh, the threefold distinctions ceremonial, um civil, and moral. Now, the complaint about that is like, well, the Bible doesn't obviously split into that and it literally everybody knows that who made those categories. They were just saying it's really useful to have words to say, oh these things are more about the ceremony like the sacrifices. we'll call them ceremonial. They were never saying, there was these hard line distinctions or these things are really, really helpful for Israel's administration as, as a governing nation. So these are more civil in nature. Um, it's not the case that those are, there's no such thing as a moral overlap in those categories. Like that's just, that's sort of a later reflection on what people assume that people meant by those categories, which is just not true. Historically, everyone knew that. In fact, <laughs> Franciscus Junius was asked to write for the Netherlands, the, the, um, the government there basically said got rid of Spain as an overlord and said how do we run a nation? And then they asked Junius, "Hey, can you help us think through the law of Moses relates?" And throughout that, he's like, "Sure," uh, but for that, he's always showing how these these three categories are porous and open and overlap, and it's just it's just like it's like a t- it's a way to teach. And mm-hmm. certainly, if you think like as you noted, a lot of the sacrifice and ceremonies, or killing a sheep or whatever, don't happen anymore. Well, why? Because there were ceremonies or signs. That were meant to prepare you and give you the theologic, the theological logic, to understand what Christ came to do, uh, why He lived the way that He did, why He died the way that He did, and why He rose the way that He did. The point of Leviticus and all the detailed sacrifices articulated there is to give you the framework, the moral framework, to understand sacrifice and redemption. That's why it's there. Yes, it was to Israel and they did do that historically but it was always for us to make sense of Christ. If you read Leviticus apart from the entirely Christocentric focus of that book, it's like interesting history but it's not it's not written for you for interesting history because hmm. it's written for us upon whom the ends of, upon whom the ends of the ages have come to understand the structure of reality to make sense of why Christ had to die and be sacrificed for our sins. Um, so I think that's really important. I think you talk about some of the civil stuff. Yeah. There are certain things that are written, written for, um, uh, for Israel and their time that makes sense for them. The one that I remember, and I always remember it, but it's like, it's like, it's not inappropriate because it's in the Bible, but it's kind of like an awkward one. It's in Deuteronomy when, uh, military goes out for war. Um, one of the, uh, the laws there is if, if, if you have an, a nighttime, a mission, like you've got to like cleanse yourself first. It's funny, I always remember that one because it's so weird um, for our standards. But my point is, well, that's no longer directly applicable as a law code over us, not least of which because we're not the nation of Israel, but also because the cleanliness laws have been transfigured by Christ and all things have been made clean. Um, So you can think of Acts 10, I think it's Acts 10 when the the blanket comes down with the four corners and all the animals are on it. and Peter gets told (laughs) over and over, all things have been made clean. Um, So those purity laws have been fulfilled and summed up in Christ, who is the spotless lamb of God, who died for us and for our salvation. So there's things like that where you have to be really careful with the Mosaic law that you're not interpreting it as if we are still a nation called Israel who lived like whatever 3000 years ago, but to understand it as written for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come as the body of Christ post the nation post nation of Israel.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's good context to have. I mean, an interesting anecdote is growing up uh, an uncle at the church I went to was saying like, Hey, you shouldn't shave the sides of your head. And I think I was like 12 or 13 and I was like, I really want to get a fade and that wasn't like appropriate and it was like mix miscontextually presented that, like oh this mosaic law is like applicable to you not getting a fade so yeah it's, it's definitely good context to have obviously i wish i had it when i was younger and didn't have to learn that kind of as i went to high school and university
2: yeah i mean there's i mean if you if you read the law in the direct way, as if you were an Israelite 3,000 years ago, and as if Christ had not yet come and fulfilled and uh, was the end of the law, then you would read it in weird and odd ways. Like, for example, like things that are repeated in the Torah. Well, three times in the Torah, you have this command, don't boil a kid goat in its mother's milk. So conceivably, that's very important because it's repeated over and over. Or for example, you have instructions of how to build an altar. But there's actually three different sets of instructions. One's a dirt one, if I remember right. One's a stone one, and then I think one has metal, uh, like gold, on it, like the altar. So you're like, which altar do I make? So I think you have to read the Torah, so Genesis, um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which people call the Torah. All five of those books, within a context that they're not meant to be uh, inclusive of every possible law or regulation or restriction that israelites had but rather they are the ones that are in that moses included well god was the author really that god included to teach us what how, how we should live divine wisdom how we should think about christ it is a selection of a near infinite set of possible things that could have been included that were most salient and relevant and important for the uh, as, as as encapsulated so originally to the israelites than for us later on so i think you know you can kind of see that where people count up the laws and there, there has to be more like there's so much that's not stated right there's right. so many things but that's because if you think about how we like like today every five years there's a new technology so or, or a new thing that happens is you always have to create new rules and guidelines and regulations that certainly was happening all throughout israel's history but was never Wasn't necessarily included in the books from Genesis through Deuteronomy.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that kind of gets into this question of application. So all Scripture being God breathed, you know, useful for teaching, for training in righteousness. Okay, we're going to become more righteous by applying the Bible to our lives. How do we then make that step from okay, here's what the Bible says here: do not steal. Okay, I probably shouldn't go into someone else's iPhone and hack their iPhone and steal their data, you know, steal steal identity because that's stealing, that that hacking, you know, that's taking advantage of someone else's digital property, but that that applies, right? That's a kind of a clear connection. Sometimes it's more difficult to make those connections between what the Bible says and then you try to take okay, here's the principle behind it. And then here's how we apply it today. And sometimes Christians can disagree. Like you, you've written a few different articles, um, kind of stemming from the pandemic, perhaps is your motivation related to masks and kind of dealing with how do we, how do we handle masks? Should we wear masks? Should we not? Um, and you, you've kind of thought, thought about that in terms of how Romans 14 would apply to it. Um, yeah, maybe you can, maybe we should go there or, um. Or, or first even this this idea of the Bible having principles and applying them and, and working that out. And when we have differences of opinion on how we should apply it.
2: Yeah. Um, different directions to go. Um, first of all, uh, let me just say two really quick things. One is life isn't simple. So, You shouldn't expect everything to be like straightforward. I mean, if you've worked in a job for a while, at least if it's a more technical job, like an engineering job or whatever, you know that it takes many, many hours of thinking and planning and articulation to accomplish objectives. It's it's actually hard. Marriage, maybe a simpler one to, to understand is like marriage and children and child rearing It's simple at one level, but there's so much new stuff out there. You're always thinking afresh. It's actually pretty hard. But for some reason, most of us think about moral reasoning or understanding scripture or whatever or theology. Like it it should be much easier than that. Hmm. But I mean, God's infinite and you're finite. So it's unlikely that God's going to be easy for you to, to crack open and understand because he's completely of a different. Order than we are. And yet he does reveal himself to us. Um, and so we should expect to be able to understand what he's revealed. But what he's revealed, because he's infinite, it has to be a sliver of what's possible that he could have revealed. And so I think there's a bit of we have to be a bit more like humble, I think, in what we know. So that's just kind of a backdrop. And the second thing is, well, or there's actually three things now that I'm thinking now I'm talking. Second thing I want to say is like, okay, for moral reasoning, every everything you have, there's always going to be a first principle, right? I mean, the first principle of moral reasoning is like one of them could be like don't murder. <laughs> well, that's true. It's uh, a, one of the 10 commands commandments. But also virtually everybody everywhere knows that murder is wrong. Now, some people might murder anyway <laughs> like cuz they just want to. There might be the rare culture where there's like ceremonial killing and things that are maybe allowed, but that's it's usually more more convoluted than just straight up murder. Basically, murder is a first principle of moral reasoning because um god is life the reason why that's a ten commandment is because it's representative of who god is creates life and preserves it it's embedded within the created order and this is why genesis 4 when cain yeah yeah cain murders abel it's obviously wrong before the ten commandments right so there is a natural order of things that everybody knows even if they deny it or even if they do you evil? in fact the entire industry I, i'm getting to your i know that i'm not directly answering it but i feel like these are two things that i need to generalize before i sp- be specific uh, everyone knows this because like for example uh, everyone wants goes to like self 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 help everyone likes oprah winfrey for over 60 everyone likes dr phil if you're over 50 um as so you go down early like jordan peterson if you're like 20 to 25. Five or whatever or, you know you just you go through like these different categories everyone wants self-help everyone is trying to improve upon themselves and they're frustrated that they can't so the problem is not so much the judgment of what is right and wrong the problem is generally that's part there's problems there too but the main problem is will i mean everyone wants to be good and live a good life they um people get twisted up and pursue evil i get that but generally speaking people want to succeed But they can't. They fail. They can't get up early enough. They can't work hard enough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They steal. They they regret that they did and so on. Um, So this is a a massive problem, but not the first principles. I think basically every culture can understand basic first principles of moral reasoning. That's why virtually every country you go to has laws that um, protect people from theft. Now, there might be some squishy things where governments want to steal from their own people and so on. Power can corrupt. But generally speaking, the they're trying to outwardly say that they're doing just laws, even if they don't actually accomplish them correctly. So virtually every country you go today to, that's that's not in war or whatever, will have a stable set of laws or like don't murder, don't steal, etc. These are first principles of moral reasoning. So they're true because God is real and created the world. So it's just embedded in reality. And scripture itself verifies that by repli- repeating them. So you might say that God's, that the 10 commandments are a replication of natural law. And natural law means because God created everything in nature, you can perceive his law, by which I mean, there's an order to reality. And so I think when you come to deeper questions, things like sexuality and so on that we're debating right now, you you can kind of see why there's a a bunch of tension where people will say, well, inwardly, I feel like I can express myself by certain feelings of gender and sexuality. Where even non-believers a lot of times are just like, this is too weird, you know? Or for example, my right. guess would be like, if, you, if you're if you coming out of like, I'm just, I don't know, this, I'm just, if you're coming out of like a country like, um, let's just say uh, Iraq, just going to make a, just random, kind of random, you're going to, you're going to be in a culture where you come here and you you find the gender expression conversation really odd, probably. I don't know if that's true. I'm just, I'm just getting, I'm just going to extrapolate. Okay. So there's some, some general principles there. So it should be hard and uh there are first principles. Okay. So, when you come to passages in the Bible like Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 8, I think you see Paul understanding this. He knows it's hard. <laughs> or like if you read if you read him in 1 Corinthians 8 9 and 10 or in Romans 14 and 15, like he gets that there's a lot going on and he doesn't seem to make it easy, right? He doesn't just say one rule everyone follow it boom submit right. he actually seems to say it's going to be real tough there's going to be weaker stronger people there's going to be people whose consciences feel bound people whose consciences feel free there are we still need to welcome one another sometimes you may have to suppress your freedom for the sake of other people and there's going to be just there's going to be problems like he does he totally admits it but I think secondly, he also has certain first principles that are just universally true that you can discern. Um, so I think in first, I think in Romans fourteen twenty three, one verse, let me double check, that's the right verse, actually, I'm look at my Bible. Um, see, that was the wrong verse. 14, 17 is what I was thinking of. Romans 14, 17 is, is a key verse, I think, in this idea of weaker, stronger brother, conscience, and so on, to tell you what is the first, what is the most important thing? And then what's maybe a secondary principle that is like an application of it that, you know, you might have different views on and that's okay. Like you're allowed mm-hmm. to disagree up here, but you're not allowed to disagree down here. It's like, you have to agree that Jesus rose from the dead, but you probably can disagree on whether you need small groups in a local, you know like. I mean? Like, um, so I think Romans 14, 17 is kind of the interpretive key that Paul provides to. Help the Roman believers know what is essential and what is a secondary but important issue. By the way, a secondary issue is never unimportant. It's so like you might <laughs> say "Pado and credo baptism are secondary like to the gospel, but that doesn't mean unimportant. I think for whatever reason, or, and sometimes I hear people talk like that, like you can have secondary and third level issues that are vital and hugely important. Like if you're going to get married, you should marry someone who on baptism has the same ish, same position as you or else that secondary issue will become very important <laughs> to your marriage. Anyway, so the, the, the presenting problem in Rome seems to be that there are different festivals and food and drinks that people are celebrating using and having, don't know exactly the context, but it could be Jewish festivals and so on, and kosher eating, possibly. But whatever it is, that, that's the issue. And Paul says, okay, look, you're allowed to have different opinions, like in Romans 14.1. But like Romans 15, seven says, you need to welcome one another's Christed despite these different opinions. So here's an interpreter key. He says in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Meaning the kingdom of God is not these two items, eating and drinking. So basically the outward external things you do in life, like sleeping at night, sleeping at nighttime is not the kingdom of God. Not that it's unimportant. It's just not the kingdom of God. So what is, well, it's, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it is the, it's being in the spirit, spiritual, and having communicated to you righteousness. Uh, So you might think justification, peace, that is maybe peace with God, as Paul said in Romans 5, and joy, which I would take as a characteristic of being justified and having peace with God. So, I mean, maybe you can parse this out slightly differently. Maybe even Paul's Maybe I'm over-interpreting Paul just being a bit more generic, and that's fine too. You don't have to go as far as I do yeah. there. But the point is, whatever the kingdom of God is, it is in spirit, okay? So that means, by definition, these external matters, which are still important, like eating and drinking and festival days, um, are important, but they're not the kingdom of God. And therefore, they are in the realm of important and imp- important opinions. Paul will make it more clear in First Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, but I think he's also clear here. Even though he doesn't use the word conscience, it's the same sort of idea that for the Christian, uh, external matters like eating and drinking are important, but they cannot bind your freedom. They don't bind you. Why should my liberty, Paul says, be bound by somebody else's conscience? I think that's First Corinthians ten says something to that effect. It makes no sense because the conscience is a mean between God and us. It is the thing that either in Paul's language, Romans two accuses us or excuses us before God. No earthly power can bind your conscience. Only God can bind your conscience. So God in his, in his word, of course, not just God in the abstract, but the Bible. Um, Well, Christ (laughs) Um, that alone can. So, you you know, Martin Luther's famous thing is that he is, his conscience is bound to God in his word. Yeah. But he, that's, the Reformation doctrine, the conscience is basically the doctrine of justification and liberty and freedom. So um, I think Paul going back to Romans 14 is saying, look, the things that matter, the things that are about the kingdom of God are not your opinions on important things, but rather the fact that you're in the spirit justified, have peace and joy. And therefore the things outside of that in the realm of non-spiritual things that's the wrong way to put it because at one level everything's spiritual, but you get what I'm trying to say here, just for the yeah, conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Things like eating at McDonald's or you know, things that like um uh you know k- kosher meats and so on, those are not those don't affect your standing before God. Your conscience is completely free. The opinions right. don't matter so you're free. Even in
0: First Corinthians, when they're sacrificing sacrificing meat to other idols and then they're selling that yes. meat, it's like, well, that doesn't that's, that's not on you. If you're eating that meat, that's like, that's, that's what they did with it. But to you, it's just meat. Cause those idols aren't real. Don't worry about it. You just shouldn't, you shouldn't feel accused because you're eating that meat.
2: 100%. And it both in, I think you're doing first Corinthians 10, but eight's kind of relevant too. Um, to first Corinthians 10 and Romans 14, both also argue the same thing. If you know your freedom, you for the sake of love, for the sake of the kingdom of God, can deprive yourself of freedoms like eating and drinking and special days for the sake of another person. Not because you are not free, but because you love others, because you want to welcome them.
3: First Corinthians eight. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God, but one, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall.
2: So this, you know, going to like some of the pandemic stuff more directly, um, there's no sense in which wearing a mask or not wearing a mask can bind your conscience. It's just not possible because it doesn't affect your salvation before God and your free justification. There might be a a sort of civil sense of we have civil freedoms that are given to us in the charter of rights, rights and freedoms. And in a sense that you because of those charter rights, your freedoms are impinged upon, are impinged upon hundred percent. Yeah. I'm not denying that, but I'm creating the category, the biblical category of freedom. We've, we've, we've these two throughout the last two years, the biblical category of freedom and conscience and and so on is between you and God primarily. So your conscience before God, your religious conscience, maybe to make it simple. I know that's a weird way to put it, cannot be bound by anything on earth. Whether masks or whether uh, speed limits or attendance restrictions and so on. But obviously, your rights and freedoms given to you by the civil government can be infringed Of course, they can infringe upon. Impinged, that was the wrong word, infringed upon. Of course, they can be. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, challenge and all that kind of stuff. As 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 a citizen of Canada, you can protest, resist, become an MPP. Um, whatever you want. All that kind of stuff is great. But that's a different category. And everyone, well, not everyone, that's an overstatement. I've noticed that people mix those categories together and forgot, therefore, the reform doctrine of the conscience, which is basically the same thing as the reform doctrine of justification. That, right. to me, is a huge problem.
0: And I think tying it together, so when I was working on my MDiv, I did some work, like just a paper on John Calvin and this idea of freedom. He, John Calvin says this uh, about Christian liberty. It's a matter of primary necessity. It forms a proper appendix to justification. Um, and it's like, what? Like it's right there next to justification and it, yeah, and it has that, that three, strong connection.
2: Chapter 19. Uh
0: yeah, it's hard used. for me to read Roman numerals, but I think you got it right there.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's you gotta read that. That's super important. So you gotta read that. You can read them also in book four on similar topics. And you gotta read The Freedom of the Christian by Martin Luther to kind of get the, the beginnings of what you're like, it's that doctrine is so tied to justification, freedom. The Reformation was almost well, I don't say entirely, that's an overstatement. One of the keys of the Reformation that everybody's forgotten is the freedom of the Christian. And the freedom of the Christian was very specifically the freedom of the conscience before God by faith, whereby God completely justified you and freed you from scruples. Scruples being external matters that are not relevant for your justification before God, uh, but are that were prescribed by the Romanist church, things like rosary prayers and so on you you could do them if you wanted to but they're not they're no longer necessary for your good standing within the church within the church of god within salvation they're no longer means by which you might pay penance or means by which you might um recover from a venial sin or something to that effect
0: yeah and i think that's the part that you know some people miss because it's like well don't we want to as christians be moral and be good and 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 there's like a pure desire there that I I respect and appreciate. So I want to encourage people and even when we're thinking about different technologies, you want people to think well about technology. That's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast in the first place is to help Christians think about it because it's so prevalent in our culture. And yet, we need to make sure we get these two categories of what is matters of righteousness, how are you justified versus these secondary issues on whether or not you use a mask or you use your phone on a Sunday. There are some people who take a digital Sabbath, you know, how do you let your kids watch TV? You know, like some people feel really guilty about that and they bind their conscience to something like that. Right.
2: So there's probably three categories that might be helpful. So you can have a personal scruple. My kids will never watch TV. That's a scruple. And you say, for me, that's right. You can have a, um, a scruple that you want to make public and you can say, I wish no, no parent let their kids watch TV. That's an opinion that goes beyond a mere personal scruple, but as a public scruple, it's okay. There's a third category. And the third category is I'm so scrupulous that I want, I say it's necessary for others to prevent their children from watching TV. So what you've done, so a personal scruple doesn't matter. A scruple yeah. that you make public is Romans 14. But a scruple you make necessary for Christian faithfulness is Galatians. It's another gospel. Hmm. Um, so, or to clarify, you're be accursed. It you're could like... be. It so to clarify, it could reach there because depends how you say it. But if you're saying to be a to be a faithful Christian, n- your kids can never watch TV. Like if that's the kind of thing, then you're in yeah. the Galat- yeah you're in the Galatians territory because you're adding to the gospel. You are. Because remember, your conscience is free before God solely and because the Father sent the Son into the world to die and resurrect for you and then to give you the Holy Spirit, to give you the benefit of the kingdom of God so that your conscience is therefore right before God entirely despite all other earthly matters. That's it. So if you say, and also you can't watch TV, your children can't watch TV, then you are in the kind of Galatians territory. I don't want to say you've for sure done another gospel because there's you might just talk to someone and they've just kind of said things goofy like we weren't really careful with that yeah right. remember the galatian teachers were saying we are teachers of god so probably you'd have to be a, a an official teacher like a pastor or something then maybe you're getting really close to galatians but if you're just like some guy on the internet tweeting out okay, like, <laughs> you don't have the authority to really do anything so
0: if you let your kids watch Paw patrol you're a terrible parent and you are not a christian yeah, but that it's again like... that's
2: an opinion that's still a that's a public scruple that's fine right I mean, maybe it's a bad opinion <laughs> it's fine
1: <laughs> no it's, it's it's interesting because growing up um my dad stepped into ministry and at that time we had like cable tv and everything and he said okay we're not gonna watch tv it's a distraction it's bad right and as a kid i was like well I don't see this in scripture, you know, as we're talking about technology, it's like the Bible doesn't say TVs are not good, but, uh, you know, as it comes to submitting to your parents, you know, in the environment that I was in, like his uh, opinion and perspective, I would have to be obedient to that. But now that I'm on my own, I have the freedom of, of and liberty to, you know, say I can watch TV or my kids can watch TV. So I think that's definitely good context. But as we, you know, talk maybe more on the technology of like masks or the technology of vaccines because they are like technology, um, and the obligation of you know we who are strong to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I do have this. This this internal turmoil to be like, you know, at at this point, we've kind of all or majority of society, at least in North America, have moved beyond like everyone wearing masks. But there still are a few people who, because of their conscience, say like, okay I need to wear a mask. So could we say that we, you know, let's say who don't have that obligation should accommodate those by wearing a mask, just like we wouldn't drink?
2: So I'm going to affirm one thing that answered the question directly. I'm going to affirm that you said, because so, just in case someone's listening to this and takes me the wrong way earlier, you need to obey your parents in the Lord. So if they say don't watch TV, that is actually that 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 obeying your parents binds your conscience as a child. The TV thing is how your parents are directing you. So just to clarify, if someone's like, my dad said I couldn't watch Paw Patrol, therefore he's a you know teaching. No, no, it's not. okay um that's what you said that was really i think really wise um joel what you said and it was really clarifying and good okay the second question is with the masks okay so the weak in romans 14 the weak is someone who who has a scruple and thinks their conscience is bound to some external matter so if you're a christian you think it's necessary not to wear a mask or necessary to wear a mask to be a christian like for yourself at least that's a scruple and you're weak uh, the strong. Sorry, I know people. People hate to be direct on these things. Is is like that's I don't right. want to be direct.
0: Just, you're hate, just hate using the language mind. of Romans 14. Yeah. It's the
2: language of Romans 14. I'm not trying to be mean. It's just literally it's straightforward. Yeah, that's what if I you're if yeah. you're strong, you know your liberty in Christ, and you don't. It doesn't matter if you don't wear a mask or do wear a mask, right? At this stage. Um, so the question is, if you're strong, and someone says, uh, "You come into my house, but I'm really sensitive and I'd like to wear a mask. Do you wear a mask? You don't have to." Paul says, why should my liberty be bound to someone else's conscience? But of course, out of love for a weaker brother, you want to do that or else you're going to you're going to do the very thing Paul warns against. You're going to argue about opinions. You're going to go there and you're going to be like, well, uh, Fauci said this and I'm not going to wear my mask as a blah, 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 X, Y and Z historical detail. And the other person will say, well, I just like you know, like you're just going to argue about something stupid. So just man up, wear your mask. And love that person. Um, all these weak men who won't wear masks because they feel like they can't. Well, maybe they would They would probably dislike what God says in Leviticus. You not only have to wear a mask when you're sick, but you have to yell it unclean and not let anyone near you. Um, so I'm just tired of these weak-willed men who think that they're so strong, but they're insignificant and silly because they don't love each other that's so right i need to have a really strong moment there because it kind of frustrates because people usually switch it so I, i'm doing that on purpose to kind of be fun but usually it's switch right because a strong guy doesn't have to one well, that may not may not always be true so um but at the same time um i think more broadly you're completely free not to <laughs> there's a reason you should uh i'll give you one example so so we have um in, in ontario we have this like I guess there's, there's no more masks, but occasionally there are places where you're supposed to, I remember I walked into the, into an airport recently and there was like, everyone walked off the plane, took off their masks, workers there didn't have their masks on. And there was like this hallway where I think you're supposed to wear a mask. And I was like, well, I guess I don't, I mean, I don't need to like, no one's (laughs) like, it's no one's wearing a mask. And so maybe I was wrong where I just, I just didn't. And, but that was maybe one of those moments where you're like, okay, there's, there's certain, there's a certain sense of freedom. Also, as a civil freedom, we live in a free and democratic society by which we have certain rights and freedoms given to us by the Charter. And you can, as a citizen, use those and have protest, And that's totally fine. That's part of what it means to be a Canadian. It's just not my Christian freedom. It's a civil freedom. Yeah. Right. So I think there are categories you can use to get around that. So to answer your question more directly, I would say, look, if you go to someone's house or whatever and they want you to wear a mask, uh, I would just say my opinion <laughs> would be. You can wear it to avoid the squabble so that you can celebrate and focus on the things that matter most, namely your love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit, and in particular, your Christian fellowship, and so on. It's a way to welcome one another as Christ welcomed us. And Paul's welcoming to say, look, you can eat kosher if you want to or not. Like he's not forcing anyone to do one or the other. And I think that's a good Christian perspective. You can lay down your rights and freedoms for others. In fact, Paul says that he becomes all things to all people so that he might win some. So he's laying down his rights and freedoms left and right all the time. So, um,
0: But church leaders requiring all the people to align in a certain way or another way, that's that's when you're getting into more dangerous territory.
2: That's when you get more dangerous, yeah. So every general rule is an exception. So you have to obey your parents, but if they tell you to murder, you shouldn't because God says don't. Um, you should never lie, but if you're hiding Jews in your basement, I'd lie my face off. Um, you, you know, you should never kill except for if you're a state, you have the power of the sword, you know, I mean, so it's, every general was an exception. Mm-hmm. And so I would say like, uh, the thing that binds our conscience is that you should respect and honor and obey your leaders in the church. But if they tell you, Hey, you should, um, have extramarital sex or something, it's like, no, I mean, because their authority is derived from the, the word of God. Right. So it's a derived authority. So I think mm-hmm. you get to be careful with that. If a church requires something. Now, here's the thing. If you're, uh, you, you're both kind of Baptistic, right? yeah yeah (laughs) so congregational polity is the thing is congregational polity sort of allows a sort of universal thing like this like we're all going to wear a mask you're a congregation of course you're allowed to as you decided on so it's a bit trickier if you're like have some sort of absolute authority over a congregation and you can just do whatever you want that's where it's like it's but that's at least in canada i can't even if your polity allows it it's not going to be very common like it's mostly there's a huge uh, congruent reciprocal rela- reciprocal rela- relationship with pastors and congregations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, and that's tricky.
0: I think that's what happened over the pandemic because there's kind of that back and forth of some people wanting this. I, there's extremes. Some people said I won't show up unless everyone wears a mask and everyone's vaccinated, and you prove that. And then there's people on the other side that if you if everybody is required to wear a mask, then I won't even show up. And there's all these extremes, but a lot of yeah, people that's try. A, that's to... a
2: weak person who uh, is not dedicated enough to actually go and sacrifice his rights and freedoms. So it's, right. it's bizarre that that's even a view. Now there might be some, ex- that might be, there's some circumstances I don't fully understand, but I, I i don't like that at all. I think it's wrong. It's obviously wrong from the, and I'm not just saying it's my, like, I'm just trying to say, according to scripture, this person would be a weak brother. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So what that means is by the way, you can say that, but the strong brothers who are there wearing masks mask of the church and worshiping need to still welcome this person as best they can. And so right. if they want to come to the church and like, you know, wear pull their nose, that's where I would say, yeah, okay. You might talk to them, you might ask them to wear it right. But yeah, you accept them. Right. You don't get mad. Right. That's the thing. You you might say, Hey, look, you're 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 wrong. Um, I I think I think you're a weak brother in this case. You might tell them that, but then you can say, I'm gonna welcome you as Christ welcomed me. And then you put your arm on the shoulder and, you know, whatever you feel you can do. That's a real trick because yeah. you can't you can't be on the other side where you're like, well, I like the mask and all this kind of stuff and call everyone a knuckle dragging uh, gorilla. <laughs> like, you just can't do that. Yeah. You actually have to be you can you need to be able to have your opinion and, and say it. It's fine. But then you have to accept them. And that's the trick. So you somehow have to um, stand up for, what you know, to be true, the Christian liberty and freedom. In, that we have in christ and the holy spirit and yet uh not exclude that person but welcome them yes. that's the real trick yeah I think on both sides right
1: the, yeah. the whole mask technology had become very relevant to us because of the pandemic but there are probably more powerful technologies that i i foresee having a bigger shakeup. um you know which could could lead us down the same experience that we had in the pandemic where it becomes very divisive because maybe we're not as um, firm in our knowledge of scripture so one technology that is coming you know with artificial intelligence you've seen like alexas and and siri in the home and you're asking it a question there's another technology that elon musk is uh, working on called the neural lace or neural link and basically you're implanting a layer into your brain that can connect with um, the neurons and then give you an extension of your capabilities. So instead of vocally asking, you could think to ask, you know, how many golf balls fit in a bus or something like that. Um, how, though, it's like most likely to come to fruition is in treating patients who are suffering from disease. So, for example, Alzheimer's. You don't have, your brain's deteriorating, so you don't have the capability to um, recall something, but now you can ask this external, um, this external sensor or, or intelligence, you know, what day of the week is it, or something like that. And you're really, you're connecting to the internet, right? That's what it is. And there is, you know, with the concept of metaverse, what the cusp we are on is how do we take what we can do with our phone which is sight, sound, touch, and then bring that into a new domain. So the metaverse, it's like all virtual, but you can still see, you can still hear, you can, um, and still interact, right? So if we continue down this trajectory and it's sometimes portrayed in Christian um, media, that there's this dystopian future where the pure Christians are not, you know, they're yielding from, these integrations with technology in the brain or in their hand you know marks um how do you, do you think we'll navigate that and and should we is that neural a something that from an initial reaction you think is something that christians could do
2: okay let me make some initial distinctions and then I'll give a theology thing so initial distinction is so Technology for medical use, I think is basically allowable in terms of Neuralink or any kind of the transhumanist technology that you're, that we're referring to generally about, uh, but when it, so that's one So maybe you're helping someone walk again or whatever. We all have mechanical legs and arm and nobody's really saying that's wrong. Uh, on the other side, you have more the transhumanist vision of the uh, movement from a biological organism, primarily to a technological organism. To upload your consciousness or mind or whatever. So Neuralink could be a part of that process in that sort of philosophical direction. Yeah, That one's trickier. So the reason why it's that one's trickier, um, and I have a strong opinion on this, but I, I won't be as strong because <laughs> I'm not, I don't have enough time to tell you how, why I have a strong opinion on this. But essentially the malaise that we feel in life, the, the uneasiness of life and the difficulty and the suffering, that is the means by which... God draws us to himself. It is the fuel for spirituality, the general malaise of suffering not not always specific but the general feeling of uneasiness the general uh, the general men- mental illness uh, not illness uh, m- mental like health struggles that we all have. We try to medicate, eradicate or ignore through Netflix whatever our uneasiness about life. But actually, uh, the psalmist at the end of Psalms, I think it's 41 and 42 or 42 and 43, not only says, um, why, oh, my soul, are you downcast within me, but also says, I will hope in God. So you're saved in hope, but your soul is downcast. And that's a means by which the psalmist says, as a deer pants for water, so I pant basically for God. That malaise, that general uneasiness of society is a fuel for spirituality, and one reason why that spirituality has been suppressed is because we ignore, medicate, or eradicate pain through technological means. So, transhumanism, I think, will be will be bad for us overall if we're able to further eradicate, medicate, and destroy the general uneasiness of life. Secondly, I think we're meant to be um, a a, a composite of body and soul of in immaterial, material, whatever you want. I don't care what language you use. Just we're somehow immaterial because we have consciousness and we're somehow material mm-hmm. because you have stuff, right? So whatever you want to call like I call it body and soul. It's old talk. You might call it whatever. And I actually think that the movement to a sort of um, uh, uh, transhumanism into a material or technological mechanism will, could dehumanize us. And therefore, we won't be able to accomplish our particular natural telos purpose in life because our purpose will be redirected by technological ends that are actually created and not received. So we'll create our own ends. We'll say, well, I want to I upload my consciousness or I want to be connected to a to Neuralink in order that I could learn 8,000 things to do X, Y, and Z. Well, then we're actually going to create goal, technological goals that may, depending on what they are conflict with natural ends that god has provided so instead of receiving purpose we'll actually create further purpose and that's a big problem in our society already that we are creating our own purpose you find your own purpose in life like you find meaning and you're always looking for it instead of receiving it Mm -hmm. um theologically uh technology is good it's 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 common grace so cain murders abel and immediately God says, hey, I'm going to give you a mark to protect you. And by the way, you and your descendants are going to build cities, invent music, invent metal, um, music, metal, cities. There might be something else I'm just not remembering offhand, Genesis 4. And so technology, that the immediate ability of technological advancement to to sort of ameliorate the, the sufferings of of post-curse world is a gift of God that should be pursued and therefore for me when it comes to technology whether that's social media or internet or cars or books or manuscript whatever you go throughout history aqueducts these are good gifts of God in his providential order of the world that we should pursue and master and own and I think no longer is it possible to make the distinction we made like even five years ago that your offline persona and your online persona are somehow bifurcated they're different people you say that positively and negatively positively it's just like something else it's not really relevant to my life or negatively like why is this person mean on the internet but nice in real life because actually now we uh, as a society have all decided to interact with reality through technology it's become the new media of communication it's now the medium also of the marketplace when books are written everyone criticized books and said everyone's going to get stupid because everyone can publish it's all new technology has always done that Mm -hmm. so there are deleterious things like it maybe isn't good that i access reality through my phone and i smooth and make everything simple and connected and not difficult because i just view reality through a phone but at the same time, it is the media of communication and the medium of the public square, and therefore, your your you can't bifurcate your 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 tangible self and your online self anymore. Whether that's a negative or positive critique, you have to be the same person in both because it is the medium of the public space. There's no speaker's corner. Well, maybe there is speaker's corner in Toronto, still, so but there's no like <laughs> obvious place for that to happen anymore especially as we gather more and more into cities which by definition um, de you so that then um, uh, connections with people are usually around associated interests so you go to like some cosplay conference and everyone from the city goes there they're not your actual neighbors but that's your community because mm-hmm. transportation in Toronto is, is always 50 It's always 15 minutes, right? (laughs) It's one mile away, but it's like a half an hour car ride. So You take a train or whatever it is. So um, I think this is a reality of cities and a reality of technology. So the goal then is to use it really, really well and virtuously. And that's where the the theology comes in. So self-control, for example. Um, And I also think self-control isn't just how much you use it. That's too brute, but it's how you use it. So like for me, like just really simple on Twitter, You can create lists of things that are really interesting to you so that your feed's not ambushed. You can block and mute things that perturb you so that your affections are under control. And then you can also um, like write down 10 quotes and put them on a third-party app so that Twitter publishes every six hours. And therefore you have interesting things you're sharing with people, but you're not always logging in, for example. There's just examples that you can do. You can have self-control, which I don't, people always have a brute brute force trauma Thing. It's like self-control is never to use it or self-control is actually mastering it. And that's the key. So don't be mastered by the technological medium. If things frustrate you, block and mute them. If things frustrate you, you can't have control. It means your self-control is infringed upon. And you can say, well, I'll just have to get better. Well, no, you won't get better unless you do something habit. This is what the Bible says very clearly. I think it's Hebrews five fourteen is that a mature Christian is one whose mind is able to is able to by habit, by practice, discern good from evil, or Romans 12. We have a renewal of the mind so that you can test what is good, acceptable, perfect. The idea is your noose, your mind. So noose is the Greek word for mind, your mind, your whatever that consciousness is in you, that internal principle, is able by habit, by practice to discern good from evil. And this is no less true in in, in the tangible life as it is in the immaterial internet life. And so I think if you're going to use technology well, you got to master it and don't let it frustrate you, anger you, just control it. Um, Create something on your phone so you can only log in between 12 and 1. Use a third-party app to share whatever you want to share. Create lists and actually then find the data that you want instead of letting the timeline uh, control you and frustrate you and so on.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a temptation like you started with of thinking that life needs to be easy. Um and so it's like, oh, Romans 14 teaches Christian freedom, therefore, X technology will be good for us because I have Christian freedom to use it. But then it's like, wait, wait, wait. God has given us plenty of of Himself in scripture and plenty of guidance and wisdom in order to inform us on how to live. So um, so yeah, I think that's a a good place to end on. Any final thoughts, Wyatt?
2: Um, I think in this conversation, we talked about a lot of things. I uh the one thing I would say is, I use some strong language, but I think in real, like, to be fun in this podcast, but in real life, self-control is really hard, so when you're talking to someone, even if you're right, be as, be kinder than you think you need to be, because I can guarantee you it's easier to be angry than it is to be kind when you disagree. So be kinder than you think you need to be, and you'll probably get close to where you ought to be.
0: Well said. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's been uh, a joy to uh, talk to you, kind of somewhat meet you. We're going from just writing on Twitter at each other or me commenting on things to, to now the next medium is Zoom. And, and who knows, maybe there will be a gospel Co- coalition conference one day where we meet face to face or something like that. Um,
2: one in November, yeah, come to it.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, I got to figure that out with my wife and all that kind of stuff. As you
2: we can bring that's, her,
0: it's fine. I, I would hope that would be fun, but we'll see.
2: We'll see. There might be, there might be things in the way. I'm binding we'll your conscience. You must come.
0: Oh no, there it goes. There it goes. Uh-oh. This is, this is what we're trying to avoid. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. And uh, this has been WWJT. What would Jesus Tech. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>